This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, this is the seventh season premiere of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganesh Anandvin, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And as far as we know, actually, we don't know at all if our books have been used to train AI or not. It's true, we don't know. Um, It's October 1st, and about a week ago, The Atlantic published a searchable database of a data set known as Books 3. That database includes about 183,000 pirated eBooks used to train Meta's generative AI, but Books 3 contains more than 191,000 books. The ones in the database are just the ones with uh, locatable author information. So wait, wait, so Books 3 would imply that there's some other? Yes. Correct. Books one and books two. Well, I'm going to be in books one, I think. (laughs) I mean, there's just other, there's a lot of data sets probably floating around out there, I would guess. And who knows what is in them? Well, who does know what's in them? Can we, can we we find (laughs) someone to talk to? Um, You know me, I like to find someone to talk to. So it seems like outside of the people who built them and the companies that are using them, not that many people know that much about how this works. But for my money, the person most likely to find out is Alex Reisner, a freelance writer, programmer, and technical consultant. I'd have to agree with you. Alex is the author of three recent Atlantic articles about Books 3, including the searchable database that we're betting every single one of our listeners who has published a book has used. Been seeing a lot of posts about that on Instagram. Uh, We're thrilled that he's joining us today to talk about his reporting and what's to come as the Authors Guild and others pursue lawsuits to protect authors' rights. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Whitney. Happy to be here. So I want to talk about what's ahead for writers with AI, but first I want to back up a little bit and talk about how we got here. Um, The Books 3 data set was out there, but sort of unmanageable, difficult to deal with, and for several months before you started writing programs to sort and understand it. Um, Can you explain what that means? What is the pile? And how did you go from there to ending up with a database that everyone can actually easily search? Yeah, so the pile is an enormous set of data used for training AI systems. Uh, It includes things like all the text of Wikipedia. There's an archive of philosophy papers. There's a bunch of documents from European Parliament. There's the full text of emails sent by Enron employees before the company, uh, before that scandal went down. Um, There's YouTube subtitles. There's just, I think it's around 800 gigabytes of text. And I just want to slow it. I have a question already, which is how are they choosing these things? Is it because those are things that you can easily get and download there because they're digitized already documents that are already out there? Exactly. They're readily available. Okay. Please go on. Um, Yeah. And so books three, same thing. It was readily available. There was a collection of pirated eBooks that had been circulating on BitTorrent called Bibliotic. And someone took that collection, turned the books from EPUB format into plain text uh, so they could be used for AI training. And that just started circulating 
among uh, independent AI developers. I came across it and it was, you know, if you can just imagine a giant text file with where each line is one is the full text of a book. So hundreds of thousands of characters per line. And it's, it's a whole book. And I found, I just kind of scanned it and I saw a book, I think it was by ta Coates. And I was like, okay, this is, there's like real recent and important books in here. This isn't just kind of self-published or, you know, Shakespeare, like out of copyright stuff. These are recent books. What else is in here? And so I decided to try to extract title and author information for all the books. And so what I did was wrote a program to detect ISBN numbers in the text of the books. And then I used an ISBN database to look up. Uh, I got the titles, authors, publisher names, languages, uh, the years they were published, just a whole bunch of metadata. And then I called the Atlantic. Okay, <laughs> I have were... to ask this. As a former- I was wondering about the order there. Like, were you like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is a story I would have maybe called before I did all that work, but good for you for trusting yourself. <laughs> I so, was just curious. I was I was driven. I had to know what the, what these books were. I mean, wait. So you said languages. Are there like I assumed, and I should not have, but like, are there non English books in there? There are. There are ninety nine percent English, but there are a bunch of books in French. There's a bunch in Danish, uh, German, uh, some other language. Uh, there's some Chinese and Japanese as well, I believe. But yeah, ninety nine percent English. And did you end up calling the Atlantic because Tanahasi Coates was the first? How did you? Why did? Why did you decide to call the Atlantic? And I say this as someone who worked there. Yeah, I, the Atlantic just seemed like the right blend. I, you know, I wanted. I guess it was the slightly political. Uh, you know, the Atlantic is a somewhat political publication, and this felt like a political finding. Um, and I knew they would take it seriously and take it. I, I think it was important for me to. Choose a magazine that had a really rigorous fact-checking process because this was an extremely complex technical process. I didn't want to explain the, all the technical ins and outs of it uh, because that would no one would read it. Um, right. So I just wanted that to be taken care of by the authority of the the publication. Oh my if god! That makes I, sense. Now I like am just imagining your fact-checking process. Holy shit! Um, <laughs> I can I can only imagine. Anyway, so you've written about what's in that database, which includes everything from from travel guides and self-published erotic fiction to novels by Stephen King and Margaret Atwood, who also wrote a piece for The Atlantic about her reaction to this, and, and a number of previous guests on the show, including uh, writers like Rebecca Solnit, um, Megan O'Rourke, George Saunders. I mean, I am naming a f like a, the smallest fraction. And I was really fascinated to learn that books three is two-thirds fiction, which surprised me given that, I mean, the actual market is dominated by nonfiction. And so I was wondering why that was, what the robots are doing with all that fiction. I asked this in the most simplistic way possible, but I mean, what kinds of learning or algorithms are emerging from that literary data? Yeah. So the way AI works, it doesn't really extract like facts or information as much as it extracts expression from the text. Um, you can think of it as creating a giant map of like all the English words and showing how each word is used in relationship to others, how often they appear near each other, um, how often words, um, yeah, it's basically the proximity with which words appear in English text in general. 
one company that uses books three called Eleuther, which is actually, they're the ones that published the pile. Um, they wrote in a research paper uh, that here, this is the quote that books are invaluable for long range context modeling research and coherent storytelling. So basically what that means is these, these machines need text that follows a single train of thought for a long, for a long time. And the primary source for that is books. So even though books make up a small portion of these systems, total training data, they're actually crucial to the quality. God damn it. Why does it have to be the writers who are finally going to take down the world? We were trying, we we're trying to, you know, like we never get anything good from technology. And now we're like, it turns out we're crucial to technology. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the studying of the proximity of words. I can like intuitively understand why that would be important to machine learning. But what I was going to ask you about is like, how much are these, uh, artificial intelligence is able to comprehend narrative structure, like where a climax should be, what the, you know, like how often characters should have conflict, how often should there be dramatic scene in a novel? If you're going to write a novel from, I mean, all the things that we talk about in workshop, are they, is it capable of developing some sort of pattern based recognition for that? Absolutely. But be careful with the word understand, because it's really just, it's all math. It's a statistical modeling of how authors do things like portray characters consistently uh, develop plots you know like you're saying the the whole rhythm of a story it kind of describes it in statistical terms um, again the machine isn't like doing this itself in the sense that it's like understanding how to do it it's just like the programmers have uh, are, are mapping the relationship between words and if you map the relationship between words in a lot of different stories, then you've extracted something about how stories are told. What about anomalies? Like, what about what about a, a novel like Time? I wrote a novel that goes backwards in time, for instance. But even more radical than my novel is Martin Aris, Martin Amos's novel Time's Arrow, in which every action that's happening in the novel is recurring in, in reverse time. Like, do anomalies like that mess up the system, or are they just small enough that the the machine learning just ignores them? <laughs> probably the latter. Uh, that's one of the big problems with machine learning is that it very much wants to move towards the average. It, you know, it's what it outputs is in a sense, the average of what you've inputted to it. Um, it can obviously talk about specifics, but, uh, the way it creates prose is very much, uh, an average, you know, it's like it, it, some people describe it as like autocomplete on steroids the main question it's concerned with is what's what is the most probable word that comes next or what's the most probable sentence that could appear in this context so it's very uh normative it's not really creative it's not creating it's not going to create anything unique or surprising okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back Right. And then as you were pointing out in, in your reporting, right, it's it's important to understand what's in these databases because like there's so many data sets that are also left out and then these things will be presented as normative and maybe they will be biased in ways that we don't necessarily understand. I'm thinking also of the fact that I'm teaching an undergraduate class right now on um, reading and writing novels. And I mean, my students were, were sitting around a couple of weeks ago, like making um, 
graphs of of narrative action on on the board. They're like, oh, here's the x axis, here's the y axis, and and I mean, what you're saying is sort of the same. Like that they're they're sitting around graphing us, um, which is what I have them do with published work to understand how it is moving. Yeah, that's that's an interesting comparison. I mean, they're the the level at which the machine learning systems are graphing the language is so much more fine grained. It's really at the level of word as opposed to structure. And I think if they are able to sort of generalize to structure once they've mapped enough words, but yeah, it's, I don't, I, I think I've hesitated about uh, making comparisons between these machines and what humans do because it is so different. And because we describe the machines mostly in metaphor and I'm a little worried that uh, the metaphors will confuse uh, people, will give give people the wrong impression about what these systems are actually doing. I suppose if I'm. That makes sense. That makes. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I'm. I'm anthropomorphizing, and I shouldn't. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's very I, hard I not it. to. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm. I'm sitting around thinking about robots, and that's not even that is like a facsimile of a person, and is not. But that's not actually how this is working. So that's a, I appreciate that distinction of of language, and I will try not to have, will try not to have any more metaphors. Well, I mean, what, what um, you're saying about normative that's that's where like in, in just in terms of literary fiction, I just sort of think it's not going to matter because literary fiction is not supposed to be normative. Now, you I can understand how it might matter for writing an episode of Chicago Fire or like you know a, a mainstream sitcom or something like that that is supposed to sort of like fit a template, right? But I don't see how AI is going to start creating new forms of fiction, which is everything. Every time you write a, a new literary book, is what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I I mostly agree with you. I think there's a few things to potentially worry about. One is that it will get better, uh, and it's not strictly. Well, that's going to be a very technical conversation. It it will get better, <laughs> um, and so it it might. There's ways that they can nudge it basically in certain directions so that they can insert at this point, it's basically like a certain percentage of the decisions that it makes are random. That's very different from intelligent or creative or quirky or something that a human would do. It's just random, but that could lead to something uh, potentially interesting. I think there's a low probability of that. I, I think it's more of a threat in that it affects the economics of writing. It gives people who publish writing a certain amount of leverage when negotiating with writers. Um, I think that you know AI can write things so inexpensively that publishers could get used to just a much lower cost. I think uh, there's a lot of incentive to use this this technology, even if it's not very good, just because it's so much cheaper. Um, so Whitney and I are not in the Books 3 database, um, but we were talking earlier about the fact that, you know, that doesn't actually necessarily mean that we're, quote unquote, like in the clear. There's a part of the data set that seems unknown. And there are also, you know, there's Books 3, so there's also Books 1 and 2 and other data sets that must be floating out there in um, in the ether. I'd love to be wrong, um, but what do you think? How many other data sets out there are there like this? Yeah, I'm sorry. You're, you're not wrong. Um, there are a lot of data sets. And part of the issue is that we really don't know how many there are. Um, 
we know with a pretty good degree of certainty that Google has a data set of about 4 million books, which is basically all the books that they scanned about 10 years ago when they created the Google Books project. So if your book is in Google Books, which both of your <laughs> yours and Whitney's books are, they're very likely being used to train Google's AI products. Um, Does it help any that my first, my first two books, because of a dispute we had with Viking and like ongoing uh, about their, the terms for their eBooks, like they aren't eBooks. I never sold the ebook rights to them. So I thought maybe that was why. That's interesting. I'm not sure what you're are you are they are they like in? They've never been digitized. They're they're hardcover and softcover, but they didn't ever create uh, a ebook. Right, but they're in Google Books. I I assume they are. I don't know. I haven't yeah, checked. I'm pretty sure they are. <laughs> um, but I I guess I guess what that yeah, you so you're that's part that's one reason that they're not in books 3. Um but, you know, Google's book, giant book scanning project, uh, I think ensures that they are in Google. Oh, there you go. So. You're right. You know what it is in there. I, did, I do know that, actually. You know, I want to just say, Sugi, can I just say, like, I feel like there's a weird part of the posting about this that people actually kind of enjoy being able to find their books in Alex's register. And they get and they feel like I feel like they're slightly bragging that they got found in there when they're putting it on online. I, I have. Tell me I, I have wrong. a friend who's a playwright who has six plays in the data set, and he said he was proud and furious. <laughs> I feel like I can kind of, yeah, I mean, I can kind of imagine, I was, I was trying to imagine, you know, how would I have felt? I can, I mean, I, I feel like so much rage on behalf of my friends who are posting these screenshots, and I feel like it's, and I don't know, like kind of when I was reading your stories really carefully, I was, I was like, I think that we're probably in there. I think we're all, I think we're all in there. Um, but there is something that's really resonating with people about running that search and seeing their names come up where they're like, oh my God, you know, years of my life, or I gave up this, that, and the other to like, to write this book. It cost me a lot. And now it's going to cost these people nothing to take it from me. Um, and, and so I don't mean course, to discredit you know, that feeling, by the way, I'm just saying that I also feel that there is some like sort of slight, oh, I, I'm in, I, I made it. <laughs> I think that there's well, so in part because I I heard I mean other people also saying Whitney what you were saying, I think um, I also wanted to just make sure that for our listeners who maybe also did not find themselves in there like don't think that you're not implicated in like that you're not that you're that your that your book is safe I don't think your book is safe I don't think my book is safe I don't think Whitney's book is safe, um, and I don't know like I am now imagining four million books. Um, like when you talk about when AI has read enough books, I mean, books three is 191,000 books, 4 million books. What would even be enough books? Are they just going to take everything? I, I don't see why they wouldn't take everything that they can get their hands on. The more training data they have, the better. So. So. This brings me to, of course, like when I was, I was like, everyone, we're having Alex Reiser on the show. What should we ask Alex? Um, everyone was like, oh, God, what do we do? And so there are, of course, the legal questions. And you've written about the difficulty of holding these companies accountable. I wonder if you would read a little bit from one of your pieces for us, and then we'll we'll talk about the legal legal issues. Yeah, sure. I can read from the beginning of the piece I wrote for The Atlantic in August. Um, since this is the beginning of the piece, I don't think I need to set this up. Um, okay. 
One of the most troubling issues around generative AI is simple. It's being made in secret. To produce human-like answers to questions, systems such as ChatGPT process huge quantities of written material. But few people outside of companies such as Meta and OpenAI know the full extent of the texts these programs have been trained on. Some training text comes from Wikipedia and other online writing, but high-quality generative AI requires higher-quality input than is usually found on the internet. That is, it requires the kind found in books. In a lawsuit filed in California last month, the writers Sarah Silverman, Richard Codry, and Christopher Golden allege that Meta violated copyright laws by using their books to train Llama, a large language model similar to OpenAI's GPT-4, an algorithm that can generate text by mimicking the word patterns it finds in sample texts. But neither the lawsuit itself nor the commentary surrounding it has offered a look under the hood. We have not previously known for certain whether Llama was trained on Silverman's, Kadri's, or Golden's books, or any others for that matter. In fact, it was. I recently obtained and analyzed a dataset used by Meta to train Llama. Its contents more than justify a fundamental aspect of the author's allegations. Pirated books are being used as inputs for computer programs that are changing how we read, learn, and communicate. The future promised by AI is written with stolen words. Thank you very much. I mean, that, and again, I'm jobs joking earlier, it is infuriating and it seems like a clear copyright vo uh, violation. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Uh, now, the Authors Guild is currently launching a class action lawsuit against OpenAI, and it seems like there are two issues. First, the books were pirated, as you said, and holding Meta and other companies accountable for that when they're working in secret. And second, trying to create a court precedent indicating that using a book to train AI requires acknowledgement of and respect for copyright. I would have thought those things would be no-brainers, but you wrote that this is not necessarily the case, and it might be a difficult case to win. Why is that? Yeah, so the first issue is that there's disagreement about what exactly large language models are doing. Um, so, I mean, as I mentioned before, this is technology that's so complex, we almost always talk about it in metaphor. Um, you know, is it really reading books? Uh, is it really learning how to write? No. Um, but what it is actually doing is so complicated that it's hard to explain, and there's really no analogy with anything that humans do. Um, the second issue is that is really the fair use doctrine within copyright. Um, so that describes cases where it's okay to use copyrighted work. Um, and that's why we're allowed to use samples and music. We're allowed to quote passages from other books. We really need fair use. It's, it's important. Um, but the question now is, is training AI systems on copyrighted books? Is that fair use? Um, you know, well, the but they're, courts, not, they're not taking a small part of the book. They're taking the whole thing. They're taking the whole thing. Yeah. And, and you're right that that is a part of that. That is one of the requirements for fair use that you're only taking uh, a small part of the thing that you're taking from. But I mean, that, speaking of Google, they have no problem enforcing fair use doctrines on YouTube videos. They get really pissed off if you, you know, run something that's copyrighted on your on your channel. Are, are you saying that, are you suggesting that there's hypocrisy going on here? I am suggesting that. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Um, 
No, of course. It's, it's, you know, these are companies that are extremely protective of their intellectual property. Uh, you know, they're built on massive numbers of patents and trade secrets, and they don't seem to have similar respect for other people's uh, intellectual property rights. But the fact is also that fair use is an extremely technical subject. Judges can rule in really unpredictable ways. It can be very hard to predict the outcome of fair use cases because there are a lot of requirements for fair use, but some of them turn out to matter a lot more than others. Um, there's the notion of substantial similarity between two works. Um, there's the idea that the use of the work is transformative, not the work itself, but the way it's being used. Um, what matters in fair use really is that human creativity is being promoted rather than stifled. Um, and I think what, you know, your view on whether that's the case with generative AI depends on how important you think generative AI is and how it works. Uh, you know, is it, is generative AI enough, important enough that using copyrighted materials to build it should be considered fair use? Um, and I've spoken to a lot of lawyers in the course of reporting this piece, and they're, they're pretty split. Some things the, that the writers have, uh, you know, kind of knocked down case, but a lot of them think that it's uh, clearly fair use. My God, because it seems like actually one of the subtle things that is going on in their argument actually is metaphor. Like they're almost arguing that it is like reading, but it's not like reading because there's. That, that's one. Sorry, that's that's one of the reasons I was reprimanding you before, Sugi, <laughs> is is that okay. all the metaphorical language really, <clears throat> excuse me, plays right into their their plan. Um, it, any anything that makes it seem like these computers are doing what humans do uh, makes it more likely. It, it makes it seem more natural that the laws that apply to humans should apply in the same way to these algorithms. Right. And, and fair use also relies on like the, the, the person doing the usings, their humanity. Um, and, um, oh, my thought is totally gone. Uh, okay, well, I have something. I, no, no. Go the, ahead. <laughs> why is it that the Authors Guild, which I know very little about, but I picture as like something from a Dickens novel in New York in a small office. It's got a lot of cobwebs and not a lot of money. You know, why isn't, why aren't the major publishers uh, doing this lawsuit? Where, where's, where are the big boys? Not that, not the Authors Guild is important, but they don't, they, they don't have as much money as like, you know, Random House. You're not going to like the answer to that. Um, well, <laughs> I have to get the answer anyway. Yeah. The, I, as far as I can tell, the publishers are really uh, embracing generative AI. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, they have been using it for the kind of back office tasks that a lot of big companies are using it for, like scheduling meetings, sending emails. Um, they're also using it to find like comp titles for books that they might be publishing. They're using it to generate metadata, all of which sounds like okay. But then it starts to kind of encroach on the book acquisition and editing process when they, uh, there's, there's been a couple cases of them using generative AI for cover images for books. Uh, they claimed that they didn't realize that the book, that the images were AI generated, but it's not totally clear. Um, they're using it for translation and image creation for manga. 
They're using it to create marketing copy. They're also using it to summarize manuscripts that get submitted, which is a little disturbing because as we were talking about earlier, it's it kind of in a way normalizes all the text that it reads. And so if you submit like a really weird book, is it going to summarize the book as being kind of weird or is that is it just going to make it sound like so ai um, is like doing coverage now which formerly a, a lower level intern would do or yes. something like that yes okay fantastic yeah so alex i wanted to go back to something you were talking about um about substantial similarity and i remember reading in one of your pieces that some of the lawyers were arguing that ai is creating works that are not substantially similar to our works so then that sort of means, and again, to Whitney's point about hypocrisy, that there, there's this sort of two-faced thing going on where they're saying to the court, um, you know, when we ask our AI to write a book in the style of Alice Munro, it's not actually doing that. But then the use is being marketed as like, we can get, uh, we can get this AI to create a text. I'm not going to use the word right even. Create a text that is Alice Munro-like in a way that you won't be able to tell the difference. Um, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Like, what do you think about this substantial similarity argument? Yeah, I think these systems can, to some degree, just spit out their training text. The The companies have gone to great lengths to prevent that from happening. They also, they can't do that 100% of the time. In some cases, they can. The companies are preventing that from happening. But uh, the substantial similarity... Like, how can they say to some people, we can do a perfect imitation of Sugi and then say to these other people, like, definitely this, this is not, this does not sound like Sugi. It's legally defensible. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I think it's like really getting into this gray area because nothing has, nothing like this has been in the courts before. There's no, you know, uh, like there's a undergraduate writing exercise, right? Where you try to imitate uh, a, a writer, the, the voice of a writer you like. But no one, no one goes out and tries to sell that uh, in the way that is or, or you know, very soon could be happening here. Um, I, the substantial similarity thing, again, I, I think it's, it's highly, the legal meaning of that is very technical. And I'm not sure exactly what it means, <laughs> to, to be honest. I don't, know, <laughs> okay. I, I don't know if it needs to be like, if, if the actual words need to be similar or if like capturing an author's voice is similar enough. Uh, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of variability in the same way that like, I don't know, like, are they going to be mapping syntactical patterns or vocabulary or what have you, all of which can be probably mathematically represented, as you were talking about earlier. So to probably the question that all of our listeners would would like us to ask, if you had written a book that was in one of these data sets, what would you be doing right now to protect your own work? Because the Authors Guild put out this piece and, and gave us gave some advice and some of that advice is obvious, like send letters to the company, donate money to the guild to support the lawsuit. 
Then some is less obvious, like setting up Google alerts for your book or sending takedown notices when you find unauthorized copies, including like they have a sample no AI training statement that they suggest you put on your copyright page or like learn how to edit a robots.txt file so you can restrict OpenAI's crawler. Uh, GPT bot. Um, I just barely understood the sentence I said. Um, like, you know, what do you, what do you think about this advice? Should I, should I be learning how to edit a robots.txt file? A substantial similarity to English there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, robots.txt is actually important and and may become a key a key part of this. It's pretty technical, but I, the quick explanation is. It's a file that sits at the root of every website and describes what robots can and can't view on your site um, and to some extent how they can use what they view. So a lot of people are now using robots.txt to block uh, GPT bot, right? Which is the, the, uh, the robot that ChatGPT uses when it scrapes a lot of content from the web for training. So you, you can do that. I think, you know, but again, that doesn't, that's not going to help with books. That's only with stuff that you put on your own website, because that's the only website where you can control robots.txt. Um, this is really tricky. Uh, even suggestions that seem like they should work, like a no AI training uh, clause in your copyright notice in the front of your book. I, my understanding is that's not really going to work. Um, as an author, you have a very limited ability to, to specify how your work can be used. Like you could put in a copyright notice that uh, you can't read this book on the Sabbath, for example. But in court, a judge is going to say you, you can't enforce that. Like people who buy your book can read it whenever they want. Um, and in, in the same way, if a judge decides that training AI on copyrighted material is fair use, they're going to say that no author can specify that a company can't do that. So it's it's really tricky on an individual author level. I think what what seems really important to me right now is kind of staying on top of what the publishers are doing. You know, I mean, as I said, they're they're they seem to be embracing generative AI. They're staying off awfully quiet as all these authors are filing lawsuits. And yeah, I don't know if the Authors Guild is is planning some kind of interaction with them. You know the. The Writers Guild of America uh, just achieved something that could be helpful uh, with the studios in Hollywood. Um, I don't, you know, the Authors Guild is a very different kind of organization. The whole labor situation is very different. But I, you know, I don't, I don't have any great advice other than I, I think let's, you know, try to keep an eye on the publishers and maybe encourage them to keep AI out of the the book acquisition and editing process. The Screenwriters Guild is much more powerful and has a much longer history of striking and negotiating with the studios. The, 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 I mean, authors like us, we're sort of more like professional golfers. We're independent contractors. I don't think people think of themselves as being in a union or guild in that way. And so it may be the time for authors like us to learn how to do that because it's going to take a collective action to protect some of this stuff, it seems like. So, Alex, the, you were referring earlier to the guy who made Books 3, Sean Presser, who told you that he did it in part to have a data set available to people other than rich corporations who are developing AI. Um, in other words, to kind of level the playing field by making open AI grade training data widely available. 
And as you write, piracy used to primarily benefit individuals. And I have been thinking about this recently because I learned that my work appears in libraries like Z Library. Then I was talking to someone else about it and they were like, you know, this is incredibly important for accessibility in the global south, which is, you know, you're writing about Sri Lanka, like people there who want to be able to access your work might be accessing it this way. So because my initial reaction was kind of to be like, this unauthorized copy is out there, I feel violated. And then um, she was talking about um, the grief that people experienced when, I mean, Z libraries often, you know, it gets taken down and pops back up again, gets taken down, pops back up again. And the sadness people experience when they lose access to some of these things. And, and I was, I don't know, I was kind of moved by that story and thinking about my friends who are copy left activists, et cetera, and who have talked about this kind of accessibility. But now this kind of piracy is benefiting corporations. So like, is there a way to thread that needle to kind of stop corporations while adopting anything close to a copyleft perspective? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's pretty complicated. I mean, you're talking basically about how we manage access to this stuff for different people. The situation is really, as I see it, it's kind of a consequence of, of just digitizing everything, which we've been doing for the past 25 years. Um, there's a sense in which digitization kind of cheapens books. Uh, it's like cheapens writing. It just turn, it turns it into data. They become kind of ephemeral. They spread really easily across the internet. You know, since the advent of social media, we've seen how companies can scan and mine text for, you know, demographic information about us, like our habits, our brand preferences, and, you know, and now our, our writing style, which they can mimic. You know, things being digital is extremely convenient, but this is the part of the cost of it. So this um, is the penalty that I have to pay for pirating every single movie I've watched over the last 10 years? Yeah, it's it's coming back. Winnie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this it's it's really it's really tricky. I mean, I you know, I don't know what percentage of Americans have used pirated books or movies, but I'm sure it's it's huge, you know. Um this stuff is just... I used to be able to hear people at restaurants talking about different pirating sites in the, like the in the heyday of the Yeah. Yeah, every, everyone knew bourgeois thing. The Pirate Bay. Well, I guess the only other thing I would say is there's there are definitely writers that don't mind that their work is being used. Uh, Stephen King and Ian Bogost both responded in the Atlantic to my pieces, um, saying that they really didn't they didn't mind. They kind of don't get what the big deal is. Um, so I think the question for people who do mind, you know, or, or one question is what would make it okay. I think a lot of the anger among writers, and I mean, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of it comes from the non-consensuality of what's happening. Uh, I think there's a growing consensus among artists and musicians and writers that we really need, that there's like three main things. There's consent, which means that you're opted out by default. Your, your, your work is opted out from training by default and you can opt in if you want. Uh, number two would be credit because from a certain perspective, generative AI is really like an intellectual property laundering service. It really presents the work of people without their, it just, it's a way of removing people's names from their work and, and selling it um, as the product of like an artificial intelligence, you know, like a robot came up with this. Um, so I think some way of giving people credit when their work goes towards producing a response from an AI 
Uh, and transparency is the third one. Uh, we need to know what is being used to train these systems. It can't continue in total secrecy like it is. That being said, the companies do, I, I feel like they are entitled to protect their trade secrets in some way, like the, the list of books that they're using. If that were disclosed, it would hurt their competitive advantage. But at least disclosing the copyright status of the things they're using, I think there's there's some way that they can be more transparent than they are being right now. Um, I think that would probably go some way towards making authors feel a little better about what's going on. I don't know how you guys feel about that. That sounds, I mean, yeah, I did hear, I did hear just a a lot of people sort of like, but they didn't even ask, you know, I didn't know feeling caught um, off guard, even though we've, you know, we've been told AI is coming, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What you're saying makes sense to me. I think there are some people who would of course opt out and other people, yeah, compensation, um, right? Like yeah. when we're not in a very lucrative field and they're going to profit enormously. Yeah, that's that's the fourth one. I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about that one because licensing, like how, how, is, how would the licensing work? You know, it's like, it's kind of being copied once. Like it does this, this is not about like an additional sale of your book. It's something larger than that. Um, yeah, I, I agree. They're making a, an enormous amount of money off this. There needs to be some sort of compensation. Um, I don't know how that's going to end up working. So the the last question I want to squeeze in because this worries me now on a daily basis is that I have a motor disability. So I often am writing with voice recognition, which runs on AI. And I was kind of wondering if everything I say to voice recognition is getting mined. And I assume that it is, which maybe means I shouldn't be using voice recognition to write which maybe means I'm not totally sure physically how I write. I'll have to find some other system. Do you have any like take on this? I'm pretty horrified by this every time I activate. My I use a, a mechanical typewriter for uh, first drafts. I, th- I don't think that can be mined. <laughs> well, congratulations on your functional hands. <laughs> oh, that's right. You can't, you, can, you can't use that. I'm sorry. That was me. <laughs> um, I think, you know, some of this stuff, it's, I think the answer might be partly it depends how interesting what you're saying is. If you're writing books using uh, dictation, then yeah, it, maybe it's being used. But I, I think this is covered by the privacy policies of certain devices and services pretty clearly. Um, and my guess is that it's, I, I don't think that these interactions don't strike me as all that useful f- as like base training data for these systems, they strike me as more useful for kind of fine tuning stuff. Like, uh, how well did it transcribe what you just said? Um, I don't know if you're giving any feedback ever on how well it's, it's doing, but I think that it it is being used. Everything that you, uh, give these companies is being used in some way. Um, it may not be as AI training data per se, um, but it could be, um, AI fine-tuning data. Okay. I did write much of my second book in in Google Docs. Yeah. I, I wouldn't so. I wouldn't worry about them taking the text, but uh yeah, I don't know if you can hire a uh amanuensis or something. It's uh it's more expensive. But that, I mean that's okay. the thing. You're you're in the process of doing that. Like that is AI. It's the same technology. Yeah. I'm benefiting from it yeah. as well. So yeah, it's very hairy. Yeah. 
So listeners, we probably don't have to tell you, but be on the lookout for Alex's future reporting on this topic and check out the pieces he's already published on Books 3 on the Atlantic's website. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!